Please turn in Isaiah to chapter 40, and we continue our messages on why believe. Questions non-Christians ask about the faith. And today we ask the question, is God really fair? Is God really fair? Now, when I planned this series, I had no idea that the Timothy McVeigh trial would be this week. But as I've been reading what's going on, this has been a very appropriate question. Is God really fair? Well, that is really a lead question for several other questions that crop up from time to time. There is the question, is it true that what goes around comes around? Can I really count on that? Can I really count on that? Will wrongdoers ultimately be punished? Why does God let wicked people prosper? Uh, will I be rewarded for doing the right thing even when it hurts or when it costs me something? Does it really pay to serve Jesus? Why do some people seem to get away with murder? You know, if I'm three days late on my credit card, they call me. But I find people go six months without making a payment. And I have to ask, have you ever, how many of you have ever asked, your, how come I can't get away with anything? I mean, I can't even lie to my wife. She knows exactly when I'm telling her the full story and when it's a partial story. She can tell. That old truth radar zeroes right in and says, come on, you're not coming clean. We were trying to plan a party, a birthday party for her. By the time we got there, it was all out in the open. Her truth radar had gotten the whole news out. It's that same instinct in her which makes her open up the corners of presents. She inherited it from her dad. It's in the genes. <laughs> so I want to ask that question today. And did you realize that as we asked that question, it was asked by the ancients? In fact, the people of Isaiah's day in Judah asked exactly the same question. Assyria invaded Judah. Hezekiah prayed for God to turn them back, and God did it. And then Hezekiah got sick, and he asked for 15 years, and God gave it to him. And then after God gave him 15 years, during that time, he did one of the dumbest things any king has ever done. He calls the Babylonians into the temple and says, I want to show you all our golden vessels, how rich we are, and what our worship is all about. And when they got their eyes on those, they made up their mind they were going to invade them. And they did. Now, the backdrop of all of that was that God kept calling Judah to repent of her idolatry, to repent to repent of her mechanical worship, to repent of her injustice and greed, and Judah refused to turn, and God said, I'll bring judgment. So that by the time you come to chapter 40, verse 25, you'll see three basic questions asked by the people of Judah because of God's judgment. 
Question number one is found in verse 25. The question is, why doesn't our God treat us like other gods, treat other nations and other tribes? And God's answer is a question. To whom will you liken me? I am not like any other gods. And he even describes those gods. He says that they are made by silversmiths and woodsmiths, he said. Lift up your eyes and see who has created these things. I created them. In verse 18, he said, what likeness will you compare to God? The workman molds a graven image. The goldsmith spreads it with gold. The silversmith puts a silver chain around his neck. Whatever is too impoverished for such a contribution, whoever doesn't have money to have that kind of a God made, chooses a tree that will not rot, seeks a skillful workman to carve out an image so he makes his own God. He doesn't like the God he has. He makes his own God. And God says, I'm not like the gods of the other nations. So when you ask the question, why doesn't God treat us like the other gods of the other nations? The answer is, I alone am God, and those are not gods. They're made by men. Man created his gods, but this God created man. Have you ever seen real idols? I mean, have, have you ever been in Africa where you, and you look at the little idols that they've got sitting up all over the villages? It really is frightening when you look at them. I'm scared when I, when I see them, and I know that they're actually idols people worship. Even though I know there's nothing there, I just despise the idols. But then there's a second question, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Second question they asked was, God doesn't even notice us. God doesn't even care about us. Or our way is hidden from the Lord. And, and Isaiah says, oh, you have no idea. Your way is not hidden from the Lord. The problem is you don't understand God's way of working things. Third question is there in verse 27. My just claim is passed over by my God. If you were to look at the Living Bible, it's translated, God is not fair to us. God is not fair. Look at the judgment. Did we deserve this judgment now, let me state that from the beginning, I want to give you my premise. The question, is God really fair, is probably not a very valid question. We ought to ask, is God just? And the difference between fairness and just is slight, but it is enough to help us understand how God works in this world. Fairness is my idea about how God ought to be treating me. But justice is God's idea of how he is going to treat me based upon who God is, what he knows, and what I need. I guess the best way I can show you the difference is this. I grew up in a family of seven children, six boys, and one girl. And if my father was unable to ascertain who was responsible for a certain scrap or a certain fight, he would just line all the boys up. The girl never got this. So don't feel sorry for the one girl. All right, please, don't feel sorry for her. She is alive and well on planet Earth. But he would line all six boys up 
and whip us all and say there, I, now I know I've got the right one. <laughs> now, that might not have been fair, but it probably was just. Now, do you understand the difference between fairness and justice? <laughs> the, the truth is, God may not always appear to be fair, but God is always just and always righteous. Now, the word righteous that is usually attributed to God in the Old Testament is a word that means right. He does the right thing. It's like a T-square. If you put that T-square down and you extend the line out here three feet, if it's true, this line will be the same angle out here and down here that the line was here and here. If it's true, because God's character is just or righteous, he always does the right thing. I might be fair to my children and give them each $100, but I wouldn't necessarily be just if there was one who had a greater need and I needed to help that one at that time and I gave him 175 Justice knows the need knows the motive, knows the future, and justice does what is right. Now, let me illustrate it this way, perhaps. There are three things to consider about rightness or fairness or justice. It is what's inside me that makes me right. It is my relationship with others that measures whether I do what I do is just and right. And it is my direction or my purpose that measures whether what I do is right. You might say it's like a race car at NASCAR. Uh, there are rules to guide that car's relationship to all the other cars. Or else people just drive around knocking each other out of the race. Amen? You pay somebody to go knock somebody else out of the race. And what's inside that car is what makes that car, but there are rules for what's inside that car. And there are rules that govern its relationship with others. And there are rules that govern its purpose and direction. And if everybody follows the rules, the race comes out right. That's the way it is with God. What's wrong in the world, what God is looking for, is to, for men and women who will understand God's ways and trust him to do what is right, setting us in the right direction, executing proper relationships with others, and internally making us right with ourselves. Now, there are about five things here in this text which tell us how to understand God's righteousness. Here they are. The first is this. Notice this. In verse 28, God is timeless. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord? There it is. God is righteous and just because he is timeless. That righteous God is the same in every generation. And so he is just. He does the right thing. And no matter how far out you run the line on that T-square, God will be just if if. Christ doesn't come for a hundred years. God will still be just. That is why Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Time with God is a dot, not a line. He is always in the present tense. 
And that is also why his promises are always true. God is a right God. He is a just God. He is a fair God because he always keeps his promises. Now, sometimes he doesn't keep them when you want them kept. Sometimes he doesn't keep them when I want them kept. But he always keeps his promises because God is timeless. And when Isaiah is try, trying to explain this to Judah, he said, oh, you've got to understand, God is an everlasting God. He was faithful to my granddad. He was faithful to my father. He has been faithful to me. He will be faithful to my children. He is faithful to my grandchildren. And if Jesus tarries, he will be faithful to the next generation. God is timeless, and he always keeps his promises. In Romans chapter 4, Paul really relates to this when he is describing God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah in verses 16 down through 20. And then he said, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, God was able to perform. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to worry about whether God's going to be fair to me at the end when I do what's right because God's promise is God's promise and God is generationless and he is timeless and he keeps his promise in every generation. I don't have to worry about the future because God will be fair and he will even be just because he is timeless and he never has a migraine headache. You can come to him on Thursday and he'll be the same that he is when you come to him on Saturday. You can come to him on Sunday and he'll be the same as he is on Friday. He is the everlasting God. Now, the second thing that Isaiah brings up is this. God is the creator. He is creator. Look at verse 28. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Wait a minute. The other gods are created <laughs> the creator of those gods is larger than those gods. Our God created the world, and he is larger than his creation. In fact, throughout chapter 40, some of the greatest statements of, of, uh, of uh, truth are here regarding creation. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who measured heaven with a span? <laughs> The heavens are to his hand like the span of a hand. Who calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Who weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who taught him? Verse 15. The nations that you're worried about are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look. He lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. I mean, if you took all that the nations have, they, they wouldn't have a sacrifice worthy of God, worthy of him. Look at verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. By the way, do you know what makes that verse so pregnant with meaning? Because in those days, everybody thought the earth was flat. 
And the Hebrew language has a word which is round. And it says, God sits above the circle of the earth long before we found out the world was round. Then we went up in space and found out that it was actually elliptical. And we looked at that word again, and that word means a slightly off-centered circle. Isn't that neat? 700 years before Jesus came, when everybody thought the earth was flat, the Hebrew word is precise. God sits above the slightly off-center circle of the earth. He is the creator. Now, as the creator, what he's saying by that is this. It's his job to maintain justice in the creation. It is his job to maintain rightness in the creation. That's God's responsibility. By the way, Dad, that's one of our great responsibilities in a home. If you don't believe that, read 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli had been, and his sons had been raping the wives and the daughters of the men who came to sacrifice. They had been stealing from the sacrifices. And God said, I'm going to remove you because your sons did vile and you did not maintain a sense of justice, rightness. Dad, I want to tell you, one of the, one of the greatest roles of a father is to maintain a sense of justice in the home. One of the great roles of a school teacher is to maintain a sense of justice in that classroom. The role of government is to reward good, according to Romans 13, and punish evil and maintain a sense of justice. Whatever you believe about the death penalty, one thing is essential that we must maintain in this country, the idea that wrong will be punished and right will ultimately be rewarded. And if the state doesn't do it, and if a teacher doesn't do it, and if the father doesn't do it, then God will ultimately do it because God is right and he is timeless. Sooner or later, he'll do it. You can count on it. What goes around does come around. He loves and rewards good and hates and punishes evil. Turn back to Psalm 11 for just a minute. And notice what the psalmist says. In Psalm 11, beginning in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind. This shall be the portion of their cup. But the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. I'm going to tell you something. The devil loves wickedness, but God loves righteousness. And that's the way God maintains a sense of rightness in this world, a sense of justice. He loves and rewards righteousness, and he hates, and he punishes evil. <clears throat> Shirley and I are a little tired this morning. We had uh, two grandchildren while... Uh, uh, while John and VJ took their fifth anniversary honeymoon. <laughs> and so for two and a half days, I've had two little girls in my home. Boy, I now understand why God gives children to us in our 20s and 30s. Amen. Now, I love them, and we had a great time. But I got so tired of hearing Papa. Don't anybody call me Papa today. <laughs> 
I'm just teasing. It was great. <laughs> but Chuck came over to see me, stopped in to see us one night, and I got the biggest charge out of Emily. She's two. Now, Chuck is a great teacher and a great, he can really preach. I don't know whether you've ever heard Chuck preach. But he talks with his hands. And he makes a lot of movements. And Emily was sitting on the floor and she was watching him. And she did every single thing he did with his hands. He was going like this one time and she went like that. And he was going like this one time and she went like that. I don't, did you notice that? She was copying absolutely everything you did. And I was reminded how awesome, Dad, how awesome, sir, what an awesome example we are because somebody is watching whether or not we are fair, just, and right as God's reps, as God's priests in the home. The third thing, that Isaiah says is that God has the larger perspective. Not only is he timeless, not only is he creator, but he has the larger perspective. He neither faints, verse 28, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He neither faints nor is weary. He is consistent with a large perspective that reaches the whole world. He performs justice in the world on the basis of his purpose for the ends of the earth. That is the way he maintains justice on the earth, the larger perspective. Now, God's purpose is clearly laid out in the scripture. So I don't measure fairness in my life by whether I like what God has done or I don't like what God has done. But the believer gets God's perspective when he measures God's fairness and God's justice on the basis of how it fits in with God's overall purpose for our lives. Now, if you never learn that, you'll wind up being bitter with God about suffering. If you, if you never learn that, you'll wind up bitter with God about a loss of a job when somebody buys out an airline and you lose your job. If you never learned that, you'll be bitter when somebody else is elected chief cheerleader and you wanted that job and you got cut from cheerleader squad only to find that by the time you got to college, you made the college squad and somebody else didn't. And I've seen it over and over in my life when I accepted what God allowed in my life as his purpose and preparation for something else, I then was able to fit in with God's larger purpose and his larger perspective. Catherine, you've learned that, haven't you? That there's a reason for that suffering she went through. God had a larger purpose, and when you look at it in that perspective, we just stand up and praise the Lord and say, okay, God, I don't know what you're going to do with me, but I know it's going to be great. God's perspective is different than ours. You might have a complaint that he's not been fair to you. There's that old... Rhyme, God is good, God is fair. He gave some brains and gave some hair. Well, now, the bottom line of that is that God really is fair because he gives us all appropriately what we need to carry out his purpose in our lives. Of course, I remember Brooks Hayes when he was a congressman from Arkansas. I heard him preach down at First Baptist Church one night, and he said he had on a brand new toupee. And he said, what God hath not wrought, I went out and bought. 
<laughs> he didn't think God was fair enough. He'd just go out and buy it. But God has that larger perspective. He sees the whole earth. And he works in my life justice, not based upon just my situation, but based upon his larger purpose. I hate to tell you this, but I have an announcement to make. And that is you're not the only person in the whole world. God is working with five and a half billion people to accomplish his purpose in this world. There's a fourth thing that Isaiah says. He is beyond understanding. Verse 28. There is no searching of his understanding. We don't understand then God's purposes, but the, the neat thing about the way the Lord works in our lives when we think he's not fair is that he knows your motives and my motives as well as your needs and my needs, and he works to accomplish those on the basis of what he knows. Hold your hand here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you'll see a marvelous encourage, word of incur, or, uh, second, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. When he's describing himself as a steward of the mystery of God, I know nothing against myself, yet am I not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now watch. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. See, when God judges, he judges based upon the, the counsels of the hearts, the motives, the boule, or intentions. And he reveals those. Boy, thank God. I will not be Charles Burke's judge. And thank God, he won't be my judge. Amen? Thank God, the one who judges me will not be Ben. Because you don't know my motives, and I don't know your motives. But I'll tell you what gives me a great sense of justice about God. Is that someday, God will judge me based upon his perfect knowledge of my every motive. And then Paul says in verse 5, shall every man have praise of God. We don't know God's way, but I tell you this, I trust a wise father because he knows my motives and he judges me not based upon what he sees. Some of us are so quick to judge. I've never understood why Christians can be so critical of each other. Some of you, if you have got something to complain about, a gripe about, you go to your Sunday school class and we have a prayer request and it becomes a, a, a fried preacher chicken for dinner. You can Everything I do, you've got a second guess. Some people get in there and on the basis of a prayer request, we make criticisms of everybody we know and we make an excuse, prayer request becomes an excuse, time to talk about somebody. Why in the world are we like this? Why do we want to shoot each other down, hurt each other? We have no business doing that. That's why I'm glad you're not my judge and I'm not your judge. But the perfect judge knows everything. And that's why you can count on God being just. You can count on God being fair because he will judge with perfect knowledge when we don't understand his ways, Isaiah said to Judah. We understand only this, that he understands. Amen? <laughs> And then there's a fifth thing that he brings up. He, he gives power to the weak 
and strength to the faint. Verse 30, or verse 29. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength when, when we get faint. So that the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men whom you think would be strong shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now see that great promise in the light of the issue of the context. The promise is that if we wait on the Lord, the timeless God will make things right. That's the context. The timeless God will so certainly make things right. He gives whatever we need. Thank God. He is a just God, and if I need mercy, he gives me mercy. Amen? <laughs> Wouldn't you hate to have just a God who is only just? A man told me one night when I was witnessing to him, he said, all I want from God is justice. I said, no, you don't want justice. If God had justice, we'd all be in the pit of hell right now tonight. None of us would be alive. Everybody here has done enough to deserve eternal death. Did you know that? But you see, because we, we now move the issue from fairness to justice, justice is an attribute of God that works perfectly with his mercy. And God demonstrates his justice and his mercy, his power to the weak and his strength to the faint when he provided a substitute for our sins at the cross whose name was Jesus. And he is the propitiation for our sins, Romans 3.25 says, that he, God, might be both the just and the justifier. And so the scripture gives us a great promise in 3.25 of Romans. God has set forth the Lord Jesus to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And God in his mercy and patience passed over judgment for sin to give people a chance to be saved. Lady said to me one time, I don't understand why God took my husband when right down the street is a wicked man. And that wicked man's got a new boat. He never ties and we never had a boat in our lives. But we've tithed all of our lives. Now my husband's gone with a heart attack. It just doesn't seem fair. And I said, lady, it's not a question of fair. It's a question of justice. The reason God took your husband is he was ready to go. And the reason God didn't take that man is he needs more time to see the mercy of God so he can repent. But one of the ways that God shows his justice is by granting his mercy. And there at the cross, the Bible says, mercy rejoiced against judgment so that the justice of God was satisfied. Our sins were paid for, but the mercy of God overrode justice and God said, I'll give you another chance. That's why we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in the blood of Christ. We rejoice in the free faith that is ours when we come to Christ. God is a just God because God is a merciful God and he gives power to the weak, strength to the faint, and salvation to the lost. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the word of God. And I pray that right now in our hearts you will speak to each of us where we've had a complaint against God 
enlarge our view of God to see the issue. Help us to commit that matter that, over which we thought God was unfair. Help us to commit that to you, Lord. Help us to commit that matter in which we felt like you were not showing justice. And help us to wait on you and give us strength to wait until the law of sowing and reaping takes place. And until judgment is, the wicked get their just desserts and the righteous will get their appropriate rewards. And Lord, if there's anybody in this building who's never trusted Christ and they feel the condemnation uh, of your holiness for their sin, draw them to the Savior in whom there is mercy and forgiveness, we pray in his name. Amen.